Our second reading this morning comes from Jeremiah 2, verse 1 to 13. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestor, ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through the lands of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets, prophesied by Baal, followed worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Gadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled by this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you once again. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm a member here at Willow, and uh, it's my privilege to be leading us through God's Word this morning. Do keep your Bibles open uh, at Jeremiah 2. That's where we will be spending most of our time. Well, I want you to uh, imagine just for a second that you're part of a group of explorers in a vast desert wilderness. Uh, maybe like Burke and Wills in the Australian Outback, or if you want something a bit more exotic, I don't know, the, you know, the Sahara or the Gobi or wherever you like, somewhere very dry and remote. You've been exploring for a while and your supplies are starting to run out. You're getting pretty dehydrated and you really need to refill your water store soon or, quite frankly, you'll die. And as you stagger along, Somehow, you come across this vast flowing stream, welling up, almost fountain-like, of nothing less than pure, fresh spring water. Great! You're, you're saved. No more thirst, no more dehydration. You are going to live. But then, 
just as you're about to go and drink from this life-saving water, your mate, your friend, your fellow explorer, who you've been on this journey with and like you is on his last legs, instead of drinking from the spring, he turns away and with the last of his energy, he wanders off, grabs a shovel from your kit and starts digging. Starts trying to dig through this cracked soil and it, it seems a bit weird. So you go over and ask him, you know, mate, what are you doing? And he says to you through his parched mouth, well, I'm collecting water from all the rain that's coming. You look up and mm, no clouds in the sky and you look over and there's all this water in this beautiful spring waiting for you. So you turn back to your friend and there he is just toiling away, trying to dig, to dig a hole out that isn't going to hold any water, the, the rain that's not coming. What do you say? What would you say in that situation? Do you stand there and go, hmm, good work. You're onto something there. Of course not. I imagine you'd say something like what I would say, which is, what are you doing? Why aren't you drinking this pure, fresh spring water that's been placed in front of us? Don't you realize that your life is at stake here? You're not going to collect any water from whatever it is you're doing. You're just wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. You are literally wasting your life away right now. And after your impassioned plea, after your pointing out of what should be obvious, your friend just keeps digging, completely ignores you and continues fighting for his own doom. How would you feel in that situation? You may think it sounds pretty absurd, but just imagine that it's happening. You would be, what, upset, bewildered, even angry that your friend, this person you care about, that you've put effort into across this journey, isn't listening to you and he's doing something so ridiculous, so absurd, that will end up costing him his life. Well, that picture, unrealistic as we think it may be, is in many ways the, effort, the essence of the story we find here in Jeremiah, the story of God and his people. Uh, we're in chapter 2 of this book, uh, of the prophet's uh, ministry to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And at that time, Judah was an unrepentant lot, to say the least. Uh, they were a people who had completely turned away from God. And the message God gives to Jeremiah uh, starts with a bit of scene setting. Uh, not just for this particular passage, which goes all the way through chapter 3, but actually for all of Jeremiah's ministry. It sets the scene for what's to come. Because he starts by pointing back to Israel's past, to how things used to be in verses 2 and 3, where we see this key image of Israel being the bride of God. As we read in verse 2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. It's this idea that God and Israel are in a covenant relationship, like that of a marriage. An 
Israel as a young bride would follow her husband, God, wherever he led her, trusting that he would take her safely to their destination, even through the barren wilderness of Egypt. And God, as a loving husband, protected Israel, his wife, and ensured that anyone who harmed her would be judged for their wrongdoing. This is a good image of Israel's past. It's an image of how things are meant to be. It's a lovely picture, really. But if you're familiar with some of the books of the Bible that record Israel's youth, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you may be wondering what God's on about. Because we see repeatedly in those places that Israel was not totally devoted to God. And actually, they quite often rebelled against him. Their constant grumbling against God and their distrust of whether he could lead them to the promised land was why they ended up spending 40 years wandering around the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. But the point here revolves around a simple fact. They came back. Whenever Israel, during the Exodus, turned away from God, like during the incident of the golden calf, and God punished them for their sin, they would repent. They would recognize what they had done, how they had rebelled against God, despite all he'd done for them. They would ask for forgiveness, and it would be given. God, in his faithfulness to his covenant with his chosen people, in his abundant grace, would wipe their slate clean. The Israelites didn't deserve it. Now, they didn't deserve anything other than death for their rebellion. But in his love and mercy, God would give them the chance to see what they had done, to understand the weight of sin and how lost they would be without God. And they would return to him and renew the covenant, renew their marriage, so to speak. And that's why this is such a lovely picture. Because it is a beautiful thing to be in relationship with our Creator God, with our Rescuer, with the One who in His love offers eternal life to us. That's what He wants for us, that's what He promises to us, and He is faithful to His promises and to His people. But while God may be faithful to us, humans are not so faithful to God. And because of that, while this is an image of what Israel used to be like, the marriage has gone sour. What's changed? Well, God tells us from verse 5 onwards that after Israel entered the promised land, they continually went after, that is, they worshipped idols, false gods. Uh, this isn't to say that they never obeyed and worshipped God himself, but it is to say that they started worshipping other gods and once they started, they never really stopped. The worship of idols was ever-present in Israel and Judah, sometimes just lurking around the corners waiting to come out again, sometimes right there in your face. And with each successive generation, it would get worse and worse. What did this worship look like uh, later in the chapter in verse 27 God says that uh, they Judah 
were saying to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave birth to me. That is, they would make these idols out to be their creator. They're giving these false gods the attributes of God himself. Not just of creating, but of relationship as well. You know, you are my father. And God, in verse 12, says that this action is appalling and horrific. Why? Well, we all know that we desire certain things in life to feel uh, fulfilled. Relationships, security and protection, pleasures and enjoyments, meaning and purpose. And we all experience each of them to a certain extent, but where do they come from? What do we rely on? Who do we turn to when we feel the need for a relationship or security or pleasure or purpose? Well, at this time, at the time of Jeremiah, Judah and Israel were in a privileged position because they alone, of all the nations, had a covenant with God through which they were meant to know that God is the ultimate provider of all these things. That as our creator, he is the one who gives us true fulfillment in life. Not just now, but eternally. As we'll think about shortly, we might not have literal idols made of wood and stone around us, but every one of us can be led astray by idolatry just as much. All of us can make idols out of the things we turn to for fulfillment instead of God, just as Israel did even though they were meant to know better because of their history. We see God uh, talking about history here in this passage, and their past is is an extraordinary one. God had turned one man, Abraham, into a great nation. He made a covenant to bless Abraham and his descendants. He made Jacob and his sons prosperous at a time of famine. Then he rescued their descendants, a great multitude, out of Egypt by his power alone. He led them through the wilderness. He kept them safe from enemies. He delivered them into the land he promised to Abraham, a land they called or a land of milk and honey, and which they conquered by his strength. And they flourished, enjoying the prosperity on offer that he gave them. And above all, he gave Israel the law and the prophets so they would know what God had done for them and so that they could have eternal life through the forgiveness of their sins. Everything that Israel, that Judah, could desire in life on this earth and in the next was given to them by God's grace. Again, they didn't deserve these things. There was nothing special about Abraham or his many sons. In everything we see from history, it's God acting first in his generosity. He doesn't reward Israel because Israel's so great. He just chooses Abraham and his descendants. They weren't special on their own terms, but God chose them to be his people. So Israel and Judah owed every part of their being, all that they had, to God. And that is why God says it is appalling and horrific 
for them to ascribe the attributes of himself to idols. It is robbing him of his glory and of his relationship with his creation and with his chosen people. Just think about it for a second. Uh, We all instinctively believe that one should be rewarded for their good, hard work. Whether it's writing a book or playing a brilliant game of footy or building a nice house or acting with wisdom to diffuse a tense situation. It's good to receive credit for that, isn't it? We don't just like it, we recognise that there's something right about it. It's something that it should be done. You should be rewarded for good, hard work. And by the same token, if someone comes along and takes the credit for our work, well, that's wrong, isn't it? That would be unjust, unfair, simply not right. So naturally, the the glory due to God is far greater than any of our works because of the sheer scale of what he has done and how he's chosen to do it. And the people of Judah knew this, or at least they were meant to. It was there in their scriptures, just as it's in our scriptures from Genesis onwards. They and we can see everything that God has done for his people. And what were they doing with it? They were taking God's glory and giving it to idols that they had made. Those pieces of wood and stone with no power, like spiritual black holes sucking up the glory sent their way and giving nothing in return. That is what God says is appalling and horrific. In fact, even the nations around Judah didn't forsake their false gods for the gods of other nations. And yet Judah is willing to forsake the one true God, the God who has given them everything, who has built them up from nothing, through no deservedness on their part, and has protected them and kept them for centuries, and they are forsaking him for worthless idols. This is fundamentally evil at its heart ever since the garden of eden it's humans like us thinking that anything other than god can give us fulfilling lasting life and worshiping that instead of him as i mentioned before our idols may not be made of wood and stone today but they exist They're real. In our pursuit of fulfillment, of life, we do still forsake God to worship other things. And to help us understand what this looks like, God provides us with what I think is one of the great metaphors in all of Scripture, in verse 13. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Uh, I've long said that um, I love winter, but having recently experienced winter in Canberra and Melbourne, I think that maybe I just love Perth winters. Um, (laughs) 
less of the, the bone-chilling cold here, but more of the rain, which I like, and, and thunderstorms, which I actually like even more. But even if you're more of a summer person, I think we do all appreciate rain because it's water. Uh, we need water. Everything that lives needs water. Uh, more than half of the human body is just water, which is why we're meant to drink a lot of it every day. Uh, we need it. I did actually need it. Um, thankfully, in AD 2023, we don't really use cisterns to fulfill our need for water. We have pipelines with pumping stations that bring us fresh water from rivers and dams and desalination plants directly to taps in our homes if we're not buying it bottled from the shops. We don't even think about it really, do we? Fresh water for us in this fairly dry land is freely, easily accessible. But in ancient Israel, fresh water was not so easy to come by. Uh, fresh water that could be drawn from a spring via a well was a valuable commodity. And many in Israel didn't have access to a wellspring. So instead, they would get their water from cisterns which were basically big holes in the ground, uh, hewn in rock to collect rainwater. Uh, this water was, maybe unsurprisingly, a lot less appealing. Uh, it didn't taste very nice. Sometimes they would mix it with wine to make it actually you know, palatable. But it's not like they had filtration systems in their homes that they could use to make it better. And they needed water. They needed to quench their thirst in order to stay alive. So it was either cistern water or death, unless the cistern was broken. If the rock that it was hewn in had cracks in it, then the cistern wouldn't actually hold any water. It would all just escape through the cracks. The cistern would be completely useless to you and would probably cost you your life. So when God calls himself the spring of living water, we can see what he's saying, can't we? Just as fresh water quenches our most basic physical need, so too God quenches our deepest needs in all of life because he is the source of life. All our needs for fulfillment, for relationship, for security, whatever it is, are accomplished most ultimately by him and through him eternally. And by contrast, our idols are the things that we look to, pr to provide for those needs instead of God. And they always end up empty. They're not just cisterns providing a poor alternative to God. They're broken cisterns. There is nothing in them. Nothing other than God can truly fulfill our deepest needs, no matter how much we keep going back to them. So it's worth asking yourself this morning, what is it that you keep turning to instead of God to fulfill your needs? Do you only find purpose in your job? Do you try to fulfill your need for relationship through pornography? Does your happiness depend 
on your sports team winning on the weekend? Do you only feel secure with a dollar more in the bank account? Whatever that thing is, it is an idol. All of us turn away from God somehow and some way. And so often, it's for the things that we personally value most. The very things that God has created for us to enjoy in Him and His creation. Lived out His way according to His design. And we ignore Him. So now, when we think back to our scenario as explorers in the wilderness, the choice was so obvious, wasn't it? Such an easy decision to get right. Just go and drink from the spring. And yet, when it comes to God, our instinct is so often to be the stupid people ignoring the spring. Rather than drinking the living water, rather than seeking God, honouring Him, obeying Him, being in relationship with Him, we'd rather dig out broken cisterns that give us nothing good, nothing life-sustaining, until we die and receive the rightful penalty for our rebellion against God. The God who has given us everything, and we just spit in His face instead of giving Him the honour He deserves. How appalling is that? How horrific. But even in all this, even in the midst of impending judgment, even as God's anger burns against an unrepentant people, His grace is still visible. I wonder if you can see it here, in these verses. Not just in Israel's past, but the continued offer of forgiveness and life everlasting. It's right there in verse 13. Because God is still the spring of living water. We uh, read before from John chapter 4, which takes place hundreds of years after Jeremiah's ministry. And we saw Jesus meet this Samaritan woman who had spent much of her life digging broken cisterns. She'd gone through five husbands. She'd been a young bride many times over. And now she's living with another man again. She wants fulfillment and relationship, clearly. And even though her every attempt at doing things her way comes up short, she keeps making the same mistake, worshipping the same idol through failed marriage after failed marriage. And then one day, she comes to the well in town to draw water and there's a man there waiting, a Jew by the name of Jesus. And after some discussion about him wanting a drink and Jesus says to her, to us, that he will give living water. He will give us what God gives us because he is God. And so eternal fulfilling life can be found only in Him. And this offer is open to all, not merely to Israel, but to all people, even Samaritans. And not just to the righteous who live upright lives, but to everyone, even those with broken relationship after broken relationship. 
all of us are God's creation, loved by Him, and so the offer of living water is open to anyone who wants to accept it. And when we accept Jesus, in His death and resurrection, our slate is wiped clean once and for all. We become His young bride, trusting in Him to sustain and protect us for all eternity. We will be fully satisfied by Him and through Him because He sends the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, to open our eyes to the goodness of God, the richness of His grace and the wonder of His love. It is the Holy Spirit who leads us to understand how awesome it is that we sinful people can have eternal life through God's actions, through His choice to send His Son to die for us. Because just as Jesus proclaims a few chapters later in John 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. God, the fountain of living water, isn't just available for us to accept. When we accept him, He dwells within us by His Spirit and transforms us to be more and more like Him. And we will be so satisfied that rather than just drinking to quench our thirst, the living water of the gospel will flow out of us as we proclaim to the world the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation. And there's more, because this satisfaction this fulfillment, this permanent quenching of the thirst for life through Jesus is eternal. In Revelation 21, when John sees this vision of the new eternal heaven and earth, he hears Jesus say, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. A new, permanent covenant between God and his people, and it costs us nothing, because Jesus paid for our sins, for our rebellion, for our turning away from God, when he died on the cross to offer us his living water. So, we need only come to the spring of living water, to God himself, rather than trying to drink from our broken cisterns, to our idols that offer us nothing. As Jesus warns us in that same passage in Revelation, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. It's a harsh reality. If we cling to those false gods, if we trust in them for life rather than to the one true God, then death is what awaits us. Those broken cisterns offer us nothing and cost us everything. But God in his grace offers us eternal life. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, if only we turn to him, as is his due. So let us come to him.
to the one who has given us everything, who gave up his son for our sake, so that we might drink from the spring of living water and have fulfillment forever. Eternal life with our good, gracious God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for being our creator, our protector, our provider. We want to recognise, Lord, that everything that we have comes from you, that you are the giver of life and we ought to honour you for what you've done. We ought to worship you as the God of everything, but so often, Lord, we Rather than looking to you for life, we chase after empty idols, after broken cisterns. All the things we want in life, we know can be found in you, and yet we search elsewhere. So Lord, forgive us when we turn from you. Help us to look to you, always, to quench our thirst for life. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus through whom we can have forgiveness of sins, through whom we have access to the spring of living water that wells us up to eternal life with you forever. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on these truths as we live out our lives on this earth, eagerly anticipating the fullness and richness of the life to come in your new creation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.